You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. We hope that this podcast is a helpful resource in your daily walk with Christ. Now, here's today's sermon. Alright, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. Now, uh, when I initially read through this passage a few weeks back, I thought to myself, this isn't going to preach very well. Okay? So if it doesn't, we're going to blame the passage. Okay? But I, I, uh, I, was, I don't know why this came to my mind. I was thinking about, maybe I was looking at a wall here, I don't know. But I, I thought to myself, this is more like mortar than it is the brick, right? Um, most of the walls, especially when you look outside our building, most of the walls are made of brick. It's substantial. It's defined. But the mortar is what holds it together, right? So if you, if you built a building and you just use brick, even though brick is hard and it's firm and it's strong, it's not going to hold. The strength comes from all those things that hold it together. Now, the last few chapters and the uh, last few verses in chapter 22 uh, really give us, it, um, my Bible entitles that section, Nahor's Descendants. It tells us about who his family were. Now, we're not going to exposit those because it's this person begat that person and, and, and it just lists names. Now, those names are important, though, isn't it? God doesn't give us anything that isn't important. It's Scripture. And so that sometimes is necessary, even though maybe it's not exciting and we don't look at it and go, oh, man, I can't wait till he preaches on those verses. I mean, that's going to be so good. But though that mortar is needed to keep the brick together. It's needed to keep the whole concept of what the Scripture is teaching us together. All Scripture... All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so at the end of chapter 22, verses 20 through 24, that is given by inspiration of God. God breathed that out, and he breathed it out for us. He breathed it out for our benefit. Um, so we can, we, it may be difficult to exposit, exposit those and say, hey, I'm going to preach a half hour on those four verses. I'm not going to do that tonight. But, um, and it's hard to say, you know what, man, I just tell you what, this morning, like for instance, this morning's message was a lot more information and teaching maybe than we're used to out of the book of Matthew. Um, and so you look at a passage, sometimes you go, and I don't, I honestly don't think this way, but like, how can I get a tear-jerking invitation out of that? You know, it's just not going to happen out of those verses. Uh, now, that being said, all of Scripture is inspired, it is profitable, it is good for us, it is beneficial. So, is that the same? When I first read chapter 23, I thought, this isn't going to preach well. Is it just the mortar that's helping fill the gaps of, between the bricks and keep it together? Is that what's happening like we see at the end of chapter 22? In fact, chapter 22, you would say, that's a brick. That is uh, Isaac being offered like, this is an amazing story in the Bible. It is a foundational story for Israel. It is a foundational story in the journey of the, the patriarchs. And so we'd say, that's definitely a brick. Then we get to chapter 24, and we see a, a wife chosen for Isaac. You go, that's definitely a foundational, that's a brick. I mean, that is a solid story. So is chapter 23 simply just mortar holding it together? We know it's necessary. We know it's there for a purpose. Uh, but is there more than just mortar there. And I think that there is. Now, most, what I found, I started looking at other sermons. Like, who preached what on this passage? Most sermons from chapter 23 are funeral sermons. 
This is the death of Sarah. And many people preached those things. Is that all this is then? Is it just a funeral text? Or is there something more here than just that? Well, look at verse 1. And I think you'll find that there is much more here than just uh, the funeral text. And Sarah, verse 1, And Sarah was 120, uh, 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirth Jetharba. The name is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So first we have here mourning and weeping. Now, here's that funeral part of the of the sermon. Uh, it's interesting that the only woman in the Bible that we are given her age at death is Sarah. And the only other woman that I could find in the Bible that were even given her age is Anna. She was four score and four years old, 84 years old, when she was still serving in the temple. Even God knows better than to give women's ages. Right. Uh, dangerous place to go. So we should take a lesson from that. But in these two places, we find God giving the, uh, the Bible, giving the ages of these women. And this is the only one a woman's age given at that. She was 127 years old. Now, what's what's interesting, too, about Sarah? And I mean, she dies here. But now we're going to talk about Sarah a little bit more than maybe we even have in some places in the past. Do you know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, right, um, all revered too much in some in some circles, but Mary was still a woman who you could you could read about, you could study, you could find. This is a woman uh, who was a young woman. She was beyond her years and maturity, it seems, when the angel came and spoke to her. And the Bible says, if you remember, I think it's in Luke chapter 2, she pondered all these things in her heart. And she just, you could look at this woman and you could, you could get so much good from her. But you know the Bible never tells us, specifically ladies, never tells us to model our lives after Mary. We're never given that. That command. But did you know that there are at least two times in Isaiah chapter 51 and in 1 Peter chapter 3, two times where commentators or where we're told that Sarah were to look to her as an example of godliness in a woman? You think, I don't really ever think about Sarah. Two times we're told to look at her. Now, in uh, Kirjath Arba, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, the Bible tells us here that the city is also called Hebron. Now, in Hebrew, that word, Hebron, means friend. The city is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 13, where Abraham, if you remember when we covered this, he built an altar to the Lord after the Lord had laid out the boundaries of what the promised land was going to be. So God says here it's going to extend from here to here and from here to here and from here to here and all that. And the Bible tells us there that Abraham was in Hebron and he built an altar and sacrificed unto the Lord. Now, the city became one of the most storied cities in Israel's history. We, we have the examples of what happened here. It's, it's also, we're going to see today, it's uh, just the beginning of it, but it's the burial ground of many of the patriarchs and their, and their spouses. But it also played a part in the events of the Twelve Spies. It became the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was the home base of Absalom's attempt to overthrow, overthrow the throne of his father, David. So Hebron is an important city that he comes to here. And this is where these things take place. And the Bible tells us there in verse 2 that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. To mourn in, biblically in that time. And in what that word means is that the person would beat their chest in grief over something. Carrying a similar idea, the word weeping tells us there were real tears in the eyes of this widower over the loss of his wife. Question, is this just another example of Abraham's failed faith, of his weak faith? The fact that he, he, his wife is gone, 
He had her for 127 years. He knows she's with the Lord. Um, God's done so much for him. Is this a lack of faith that he wept and mourned for his wife? And the answer is absolutely not. This is mourning and loss, mourning and weeping. The loss of a loved one is not a failure of faith. Now, can it become something that is a failure of faith? Yes, it can become that in our lives. If we if we won't give it to God, if we don't trust God. But in the in the aftermath, the mourning is not a lack of faith. The Bible tells us in John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse. All of us memorized it because we were like, I can memorize at least one verse in the Bible. And that verse says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, if you go to that, you go to that story. I've heard people preach that, that Jesus wept because of the unbelief of the disciples. Jesus came to, to raise her from the dead. They had unbelief, so Jesus wept over that. Certainly that saddens Jesus, right? And it saddens, and I don't, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm making that too trivial, but it grieves the heart of God when we don't have faith. But he would be crying all the time. He'd be weeping all the time if it was over our lack of faith or people's lack of faith. My my grandmother's, my mom's mom's funeral. I'll never forget, for some reason, I remember that sermon like it was yesterday. Uh, Pastor Michael Farmer from Covenant Baptist Church preached on that on, on this passage, Jesus wept. And I, and I remember him, because I always heard, or I shouldn't say I always heard, I heard so many times that this was him weeping over their unbelief. And he just, he, he preached that passage, and I think he pre- preached it accurately. Because we're told from the context that we are led to, led to believe that he wept as he headed to the tomb of his dear friend. You see, we can't take away the humanity of Christ. And so his dear friend has died. And the Bible says that he weeped. He wept over it. And so is this an example of Abraham's imperfect faith? No, I don't think so. But if he had allowed this to paralyze him and not move forward in life, then I think then we see that that would be an example of that. Last Sunday evening, Brother Gary, I'm so thankful that he came and preached. It was, it was a joy to me to go back and, and listen to it. But he told a story, a story about uh, where preachers, about a sermon where the preacher said, every member of this church is going to die. A little boy in the front began to snicker. So the preacher again said, every member of this church is going to die. And the boy laughed a little louder. And the preacher said, why are you laughing? He says, because I'm not a member of this church. I thought it was funny, but I didn't hear any of you laughing on the stream. Um, so I tell the story again, because if you didn't get it the first time, you need to get it. That every member of this church and those that are not members are going to die. We know that. Our loved ones are going to die. I'm going to die. My wife's going to die. I don't know which order. I hope we go together. Late nature, you know. Um, But we're all going to die. And we know that is as sure as anything, with the exception of those that are alive at the coming of the Lord, right? Other than that, at the rapture, we are all going to die. Our bodies are going to be separated from our spirits. Yet even though we know that, we still mourn for the loss of a loved one. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow even as others which have no hope. That you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. You, you know, that's a sermon. That's a, that's a verse used at funerals and used in, in the times of death often. Uh, our sorrow, though, is different than those which have no hope. Paul wrote in verse 18, he said, Wherefore, comfort one another with those words. Here's what he's saying. You need comfort. In other words, death is going to cause grief. So let me give you some words to comfort those people. That doesn't mean there is no grief. It doesn't mean that there is no sorrow. But it means that there is comfort in that sorrow. There's comfort in that time of sorrow. If 
We do not sorrow as others which have no hope. We don't sorry for the believer that has died. They're with the Lord. And if we could bring them back, we wouldn't. Or we couldn't. If we wanted to, we couldn't. And if we, even if we could, we wouldn't. Because that would be cruel to bring someone back. And that would be selfish for us to bring a believer back, wouldn't it? Because they're with, they're with the Lord. They're in glory. So for us to say, I want them back, would be selfish. But we still sorrow. And we sorrow with hope. We sorrow knowing that they're in glory. And if we have been saved, if you have been saved, then we will be with them again. But we sorrow because of this. And I say this often. We sorrow because a part of our lives is gone. That person was a part of us. It was a part of their lives. They had an impact on our lives. And someone that we loved is not with us anymore. And so for Abraham, his lifelong companion, his companion for, for longer than probably anybody in here has been married, they were together for, and she went through thick and thin with him. She went through times where he said, tell everybody you're my wife. And she got taken into a harem. Fortunately, God protected her. But God, but God had them together and she's gone now. So for him to weep and mourn is perfectly within uh, a good Christian example. I know he wasn't a Christian because that was before Christians, but perfectly within a godly example. Now, let's go to verse 3. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake, spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of bearing place of a bearing place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may gave me, give me the cave of Machpelah, Machpelah that he, which he hath, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it to me for a possession of a bearing place amongst you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field I give thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people, give it I to thee. Bury thy bed. And Abraham bowed himself, bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it. Of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. We're going to stop there. We're going to finish this chapter. But there I want to look at here the him purchasing an inheritance. Abraham was, was living in the land peaceably, yet he was a sojourner. This wasn't his own. He had no land to call his own. Everything belonged to someone else. Now the people, the sons of Heth, are descendants of one of the sons of Canaan. Canaan had a son, uh, and uh, Ham, one of, I'm sorry, Canaan had a son. Uh, Canaan was the son of Ham, but Canaan's son was Seth. Uh, Heth, I'm sorry, I typed it wrong in my notes. Heth, and they became known as the Hittites. 
Now, the language there, the sons of, allows, doesn't mean it's just the descendants, but it, it would also have been used for a city council, like the leaders of the city at the gate or wherever they would meet in the city. And the sons of, if they said the sons of Heth, that, would, that could mean, uh, along with descendants, but also could mean the, the leaders of the city. So Abraham comes to them, he comes to whoever it was, and he asks for a piece of land that would belong to him. He said, I'd like to have something. We'll see here that he was not asking for a gift, but he was asking for them to sell him a plot of land. But there's more here than just Abraham looking for a burial plot. Now think about this. Today, most people, when they die, if they die in a state where they didn't grow up, it wasn't their homeland, they're transported often back to where they were from. My dad's parents were from Kentucky. We had funerals here. I was, I think, five for one of them, and I was... Uh, for my grandfather, and I was, um, I think I was 17 or 16 or 17, I think I was 17 for my, for my grannies. And so, uh, but I, I, even my grandfather, I remember they took the casket, after he had passed, they took the casket uh, with both of them, took it down to Kentucky, and they buried him there, because that's where he was from, that was his home. Michigan wasn't his home, he was just passing through. Um, Kentucky was his earthly home, not Michigan. And so they were transported down there for burial. Now, why didn't Abraham take Sarah back to the Ur of the Chaldees for burial? You ever think about that? Why did he want to bury her here? Why didn't he take her back? That was their homeland. That's where they were from. Well, Abraham wasn't looking back. He was looking forward. This was going to be a land that was a possession for his family forever. So why not move forward and bury her there? You see, they had more in common, not with where they were from, but with where they were going. Well, their family was all from there. Their hereditary was from there. Yeah, but God forever was going to give them inheritance there. And so Abraham found a place that he wanted to bury her. Abraham was trusting God. Not just with his words, but he was trusting God with his action. Now, the, the promise to give him the land wouldn't be fulfilled for hundreds of years after this. It would be hundreds of years. Yet in his faith, Abraham uh, saw good that if he had... As it, he saw this as if it had already happened. This is good... I, I know this is going to happen. And so he wants to bury his, his bride or his wife there. Now, most of, the, most of us probably wouldn't respond this way. But he said, this is my interpretation. He said, if this is what God's promised, I'm going to bury my wife here now. This is our land. But he didn't have a title deed to it. You see, God says our home is heaven. Now, I haven't been there yet. Okay. Um, and if I come out with a book that says I have, you should fire me. Um, we haven't experienced it yet. But it is our promise from God. Let me ask you a question. Though. Why do we invest so much time and effort and money into our herb, the Chaldees? Why do we spend so much time thinking and planning and wanting things here on this earth? And I am as guilty as anybody in this. Our promised home is just that. Oh, just ahead. We have to wait to inherit some of those promises, but we ought to be investing in those future promises. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go into the place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city with, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang even one and him as good as dead so many of the stars in the sky in the multitude and as the sand which is by the sea the seashore innumerable. These, listen, these all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off. And were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That is how we are supposed to approach heaven. That we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. We, we die in faith, not having received the promise here on this earth, but we die knowing that we received the promise. After we can see it afar off, God has given us scripture teaching us what we can see. And we ought to be persuaded of it, embrace it and confess that we are pilgrims and strangers here on this earth. Well, one day Abraham, uh, Abraham, one of the descendants of Abraham would, would become the enemies of the sons of Heth. But now, but for now, Abraham was not a threat to them, and he was respected in their sight. Now, I'm, I'm certain he didn't participate in the wicked practices of those people, but they could see there was something special about him. He had made a covenant with the king, so they would treat him well. And they said, "None of us will withhold our tombs from you. You, you need a tomb. None of us will withhold, will withhold that from you." Abraham communes with them. He begins a conversation, or maybe even we would say he begins a negotiation to purchase the place to bury his dead. Abraham knew exactly what cave he wanted. He, he said, okay, if, if I can have anything, I want you to entreat. I want you to go to talk to Ephron. And I want you to tell him, I want that burying place. I want that cave at the end of his property for a burying place for my dead. This was probably the same place where he had built an altar and sacrificed the Lord. And he wasn't taking anything for free. He wasn't asking for anything. He says, I will pay what it is worth. So Ephron offers to give the land to Abraham. Now, Abraham asks for a cave. Ephron offers for the field and the cave. And when you, when you see this here and you go, man, he offered to give it. And you just think, man, what a great guy. But my understanding, what I've been able to find out is that the, uh, what they would do, this is a bargaining technique. That in their culture, when somebody would want something, they'll say, well, I'll give it to you because I'm that kind of guy. Knowing, and that was part of the culture too, the guy would say, hey, I'm not taking anything for free. I'm a man and I've got pride. And so, no, I will purchase it. And then the landowner would say, hey, uh, here's a high price. This is what it's worth. And then they would begin to negotiate uh, the, the final price. Abraham rejects the offer of a gift and offers to pay for the field. All this was done in front of the people of the land. It was... Done. There was no private negotiating, but they didn't need a contract because it'd be recorded in the public arena of the city leaders. So Abraham says, if you will give the field, I will give the money. Standard transaction. Now, in verses 14 and 15, though, uh, Ephron says that the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Hey, well, what is that between me and you? Hey, that's, what's, what's 400 shekels of silver between friends? It'll be fine, you know? Now, um, it's interesting when you look up, when I tried to study out what that, what that works out to, they say that the average unskilled labor salary for a year at that time was about 10 shekels a year. That would make this about 40 years worth of that average salary. Today, the average unskilled labor salary is about 50000 per year. That's for a full-time employee. That would make this worth about $2 million. Now, certainly those numbers are not exact. Certainly there's, there's some... There's some room for interpretation there. And it's just a rough estimate. 
But you could see here that Ephron went from offering this from free to asking a large price for it. Now, maybe it was worth it. And this was probably, he probably meant it as a starting point of negotiating. Like, all right, I'm going to go high. Um, literally, while I'm up here preaching, I got a message on my iPad and I just swiped it away. But it was a guy who I've been negotiating with about something I have for sale marketplace. And he, he lowballed me an offer. I'm not even going to respond to it. Okay? Uh, there's negotiating and there's certain things you do and certain things you don't. One of the things you don't typically do at a high price is just pay it. You know, you negotiate. You say, well, I tell you what, I think it's worth a little bit less. How about if I give you this? And you go back and forth. Have you ever uh, had somebody give you a quote for windows or home remodeling projects, things like that? I remember about 20 years ago, um, we bought a house and uh, it needed windows. And I don't know if my wife remembers this, but a guy came in. I won't, name, I won't tell you the name of the company, but the guy comes in and he, he goes, measures everything. We sit down at the table and I already determined I'm not buying it today. Okay, I'm not going to say yes. And he comes and he sits down at my table and he says, it's going to be, um, it was $16,000 to do windows all the way around our house, both floors, everything. And I, I said, okay, all right, well, I need to think about it. He goes, but yeah, he goes, but I tell you what, you know what, I can... I can give you a one-time deal. Uh, I can do this employee discount. And I'm only allowed to use it a couple times a year. But I'm going to use it for you. And I'm, he went through all these different things he could give me now. Okay? This is 20 years ago. $16,000. I went, And by the time he left, he was down to $6,000. From $16,000. And he was getting so annoyed with me because I wouldn't say yes. Well, meanwhile, out in the driveway was wall side windows. Okay? They were waiting to come quote. The guy walks in, and, uh, and the, the first guy was like one of those slick guys, like car salesman, Brian. And um, <laughs> he, like an air conditioning salesman. No, um, he was one of these slick, good-looking guys. At least that's what I, would, I was told. Anyway, not by my way. But anyway, um, the second guy comes in. He's an older guy. He just comes in, he measures. He goes, yeah, it'll be $5,500. And I go, do you have any like discounts? He goes, no, that's just our price. Go, All right, I'll take it. I said I wasn't going to buy him that day, but I did because I was so annoyed with the first guy. All right? So that's what negotiating is, right? That's, that's bad. And I wonder, was this guy coming in at $16,000 with that 400 shekels of silver? But yet Abraham, the Bible says, he paid it. The Bible says Abraham weighed out the silver in front of the people of the city, and it was verified. What the language there means is it was verified with the current money with the merchant, verse 16, it was verified by the merchant of the town. Abraham wasn't playing a joke here. He, he just said, I will pay what it's worth. I'm not asking for a deal. If that's what God wants from me, I will pay what it's worth. Look at verse 17. In the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, the cave which was therein, all the trees that were in the field, that were... In the borders roundabout were made sure. On Abraham for a possession uh, in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went into the gate of his city. I mentioned Wednesday that there was a verse that didn't have punctuation. I think that's the only verse that I can remember seeing that didn't have any punctuation at the end of it. Verse 17. Now, verse 18. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in a cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a bearing place by the sons of Heth. So here we have a sure inheritance. We made it sure is a way of saying it's established. This land at this point legally became Abraham's land. 
He acquired the cave, the land, and the trees. This was more than he was asking for. And it was more than he needed to bury his wife. But when you look at the grand scheme of things, it was still a small piece of land by comparison. God promised Abraham that his seed would possess all the land. Now, Abraham could have taken Sarah's body, and he could have taken it back to Ur, and he could have buried it. He could have thought this, I will never inherit this whole land. I'll never get to see it. So I think I'm just going to save my money. I'm going to take my wife back. I know I've got a burial plot there. I know I have a place where our family, where I can, where I can bury her. And so I'm just going to take my money. I'm going to invest it in something else. But instead, Abraham took his money. And he acquired an almost unnoticeable piece of land in the grand scheme of the promised land. This was faith. He invested in God's promise. He claimed God's promises. He based, every, he based everything, not on the past where he had been, but on the future where God would take his family. Is this just mortar between the bricks? Or do we see here a man acting in faith? A man who says, this is the land that is going to belong to us. And God has already given it to me. You say, well, God's already given it to me. Why do I have to pay for it? Because God gave you the money to pay for what he's already given you. God had blessed Abraham where he could pay the price. He invested in his promises. So what shall we do? What can you do to invest in the spiritual future of your children? What can you do to invest in the spiritual uh, future of their children? Your children's children and their children. Well, here's what I know about where I'm at in life right now. Some of you are in different places of life than I am right now. But the greatest thing I can do for my grandchildren that have yet to, that yet to exist is to invest in their parents. The best thing I can do for my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, is to invest in Lindsay, Ashley, and Andrew. As I mentioned this morning, take them to church. Start with that. But invest in their lives. We have a sure inheritance. I have a sure inheritance. This investment, you know, uh, many of you have, have, have gone through it or will go through it or are going through it. But yet you have college bills, you have school bills, you have... These things, and you go, is this really worth it? How much money are we just sending out? We're investing in their future. We're investing in their lives. We, why? Because we have a sure inheritance. Listen, the money God gives us is to give Him glory. It is not for us to just enjoy however we wish. Now, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it. But it means that we are to invest what we can into those lives. We're investing in the future. Oh, I may never see it. I may not live to see my kids get married. I may not live to see my kids have children. I may not live to see grandchildren, great-grandchildren, any of that. I may not. But that doesn't make it all, any of it, a waste when I invest in them now. They're worth, it's worth everything. What if the Lord comes back? Man, I could have bought a lot more stuff, right? It's not a waste. We invest in our future. So we may not possess it right now, but it is legally ours. That the inheritance that we have in heaven is legally ours. Let me ask you a question. If you knew you had a beautiful home waiting for you, if you knew that just in a year or two or five years or ten years, um, you were going to get to move into this beautiful, gorgeous home, your dream home, picture that, whether it's contemporary, modern, classic, traditional, I don't know all the words. You say, man, I could move in there. And it's, and it's already paid for. It's already mine. But I have to finish up things here before I can go there. How much money would you invest in the shack you live in now? Well, I'm not. You know, I'm going to keep the water running. I'm going to keep it safe. I'm going to try to keep the bugs out and all that stuff. But I'm not investing money in this shack that's just going to burn down anyway. 
Yet what do we do? We have a home prepared for us. It is ours. We are, we are assured that we're going to have it. And we pour all of our efforts into the home that we have here that's going to burn up. Invest in the future. I, 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 I talked a little bit about that a couple summers ago. We did a series on, on, uh, uh, on giving. And I talked a little bit about that. I'm not even talking about giving financially. I'm just saying invest your time, your efforts, your money into your children. Who needs to do that better? Because I do. I need to do that better. Me and Brian. Anybody else need to do that better? Investing your children, grandchildren, and all those? I, we do. We need to invest in our future. That's what Abraham was doing. Because it takes faith to say, God will take care of it all. I'm just going to give what I can to invest in our future.